I'm Christina Young. Welcome back to Gloucester Book Club. And in tonight's book lounge with Zoe and Joe, I'll be talking about Magpie Lane by Lucy Atkins. This book doesn't really fit into any particular genre, but it's enthralling, creepy and compelling, and it's been described as a page-turner. When the eight-year-old daughter of an Oxford College master vanishes in the middle of the night, police turn to the Scottish nanny Dee for answers. As Dee looks back over her time in the master's lodging, an eerie and ancient house, a picture of a high-achieving but dysfunctional family emerges. Nick, the fiercely intelligent and powerful father, his beautiful Danish wife Mariah, pregnant with their child, and the lost little girl Felicity, almost mute, seeing ghosts, grieving her dead mother. But is Dee telling the whole story? Is her growing friendship with the eccentric house historian Linklater any cause for concern? And most of all, why is Felicity silent? Roaming Oxford's secret passages and hidden graveyards, Magpie Lane explores the true meaning of family and what it is to be denied one. Just to forewarn you, before you dive into our discussion, there may be one or two spoilers. really good to have you here with me again guys we are going to talk about magpie lane by lucy atkins which is a book that we've recently read with book club felicity the eight-year-old little girl is missing so the book starts kind of innocuously enough in spite of the fact that the child's gone missing but gradually it builds and the reader gets thoroughly kind of drawn into the story zoe what did you think about it what were your impressions of the book Well, I'm really spoiled in my position at the moment where I'm joining for podcasts, but not necessarily the book club meetings. So I had a pick, didn't I, of possible podcast topics that were coming up. And as you were reading the different blurbs to me, I was really drawn and interested by this idea of Magpie Lane. You've got a gothic story. You've got an old house with a lot of secrets to tell. You've got this eight-year-old girl at the centre of the drama, but you've also got the politics of academia, you've got the idea about what it's like to have a child that cannot or will not speak to you, so much going on. So from the outset, I really enjoyed it and really was intrigued, but then I knew I would because I chose this book to kind of look at and and jump in on the podcast on. So I'm glad it fulfilled its promise for me. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I I thought the story was very gripping. I liked the... um selected mutism mm. problem that um, Felicity has. It's an interesting topic to think about. I didn't really like many of the characters, particularly did not like Nick. I thought he was a really nasty piece of work, a very driven, high-achieving alpha male, basically a narcissist, who had only a very superficial or functory love for his daughter. I really didn't like him. Um, didn't think very much of um, his second wife, Mariah, now, she had a lot of problems of her own and struggled to cope with it all. I, I like the story, basically. So I enjoyed that part. I loved the, the Oxford stuff was great. Aside from, you know, the, her style of writing, which is pretty wonderful, I think. She's very good good with her words. She caps, captures Dee's narrative and persona and voice with really razor-sharp clarity, I thought. And, and the plot was really well done. Although I had my suspicions about what might happen, or how the story might be resolved, 
I was kept mesmerised throughout the whole thing, really, and I was thoroughly entertained. I do feel like I was thoroughly entertained throughout. I feel like the beginning and the ending were particularly strong. There were some points in the middle where, like any great mystery, we're given... I guess in hindsight, I can see that they were dead herrings, but you're taking down lots of different alternate pathways. There are lots of alternate stories going on. The history of the house is looked into at one point. And without giving too much away, there seems to be a lot going on that really, for me, the beginning and the end packed the biggest punch. And there were some points in the middle where I was like, mm, I kind of want to get to the good stuff. I want to know what's happening with the main narrative, but on the whole, very good. Yeah, it did keep me entertained. I was intrigued by the character of Dee. I know you want to talk about her reliability at another point, but for me, the, the thing about her was that all the information we have about the story came from Dee during the course of her police interviews. Mm. And not, not just in the interview room, but also there are parts where we're being told the story and you suddenly start to realise, hang on a minute, we're not in the police interview room here. We're being sort of taken to a more normal narrative, but still Dee's narrative. It was skillfully written, I thought that, because as you say, it was a sort of single interview with the police, and yet it covered Dee's entire life, and indeed some 600 years of Oxford history as well within it. So yeah. I, I think she managed that really, really well. Joe, you just mentioned about whether or not um, Delete is a reliable narrator in this story. Is she a benign presence, or is she a sinister one? What do you both think? Ah, well, yeah, this is the trouble. So... We know from the police interview that we as the reader are privy to more information about Felicity and about Dee and about her history than she's letting on to the police. So from that fact alone, even if we trust her as a narrator, she's already providing us with an example of her untrustworthiness when it comes to authority. And she has a real distrust of authority for reasons that become clear later in the book. So on the one hand, you can feel yourself siding with Dee and going, yeah, you know, stick it to them. Don't let them take you for a ride. You haven't done anything wrong, according to your version of events. But as the police questioning goes on and some things are called into question, I don't think Dee is the most reliable narrator, but then who is? But I think the author does a very good job in creating an odd character indeed, but a, an oddly likeable one. I feel like you're on her side and her, following her politics and, and morals, even if they're not exactly aligned with the law. Exactly. That's all I'll say. I don't want to give anything <laughs> away, you know? <laughs> Very difficult with because You asked, is she benign or malign as an influence? Mm. And I think, to be quite honest with you, it's a bit of both. Uh, she's, she's benign in her caring and love for Felicity and her other inappropriate efforts to interfere in Felicity's parenting, but basically try to protect Felicity from what is not a great parenting set and from um, what is amounts to basically indifference from her father. And um, she's trying to make up for that and provide Dee with love and a more normal environment, home environment. Yet she's equally, she's interfering with things. She's trying to prevent Nick, the father, from actually knowing what's going on with Dee and keeping him at arm's length during lots of the story. She's got malign influences in other respects. So she's a, she's a bit of a conundrum, Dee. Yeah, she definitely is. I think what appealed to me most was the kind of level of psychology that underpins this plot mm -hmm. and, and character, so that 
you know, the elements that are bordering the supernatural in the book, and there are a few of those going on as well, aren't there? Possibility of ghosts and, you know, yeah, weird things going on. I don't know, I just felt she created this kind of almost like a modern Shakespearean atmosphere that was very good within it within the book. And all of that sort of supernatural stuff. Was it misplaced in the book? Could we have done without that? Or did we definitely need it? I think we needed it. I think if we look at classic ghost stories and classic ghost stories, gothic stories, there's always an element of the supernatural. Like you said, there's links to Shakespeare. Dee gets tickets to go see a production of Richard III, which she doesn't think much of. So uh, there could be some links there. But for me, this really just reminded me of classic gothic books you know like in Edgar Allan Poe and there's always a supernatural house with an element of haunting and ghostliness and I think it just played really well into those tropes um so for me it felt right at home you need to have an element of the supernatural when you're talking about things such as ghosts spirituality is she or is she not a witch you know she's very interested in discovering bones and sharing that with Felicity I think it could have been a lot more explored actually I don't think it's explored enough in the novel the whole supernatural elements of it well to be quite honest I think they were a bit of a distraction there was a lot of witchiness stuff going on and all this stuff about hex signs and and the Mm. collecting the the dead animals to, to boil up and get their bones it was a bit like <laughs> eye of newton tail of frog and all that sort of yeah. thing and she'll yeah. it again you know it's all it's all a bit cliched i thought and if you wanted to have something to introduce a sort of a weird supernaturally angle maybe the priest's hole might have been a better one i do remember that bit in the book where the little girl felicity is found by d and she's stuffing all these dead bees into her mouth mm. and, you know, to eat them. And I just found that quite horrible, actually, when <laughs> I was reading it. I don't know, you know, if there were other bits that, that you guys found a bit, ugh. but that that really did, that really kind of shocked me. You know, this, this picture I had in my mind of this little girl eating all these dead bees in the priest's hole, which was kind of off her bedroom. Um, and which all sort of horrible, sort of creepy, weird, ghostly things seem to be happening in every night. Talk a little bit about Nick, who's who's uh, Felicity's dad mm. in the book. Do you think he's called Nick because of old Nick? You know, he's got a bit of a devil about him. <laughs> um, I don't know, but the, he was lurking in a sort of weirdly sinister manner every time he was present in the story, I felt. So I didn't have an awful lot of empathy for him myself. Well, I didn't think about the devil and the old Nick connection. What I felt as somebody who works in a university, not Oxford, but I think the same could be said for a lot of UK universities. As a brash outsider who's come in from the media and is taking over the reins as an outsider, somebody who's out of his depth and is causing a lot of controversy, you know, I... I saw Nick as, as that character, as someone who very realistically could be brought in to modernise um, an Oxford college. And is I disliked him for those reasons, as well as his clear neglect of Felicity and things about Felicity that he withholds from Dee that would be helpful. His whole attitude to the situation and things that he likewise doesn't tell Dee. I mean, there are things that Dee withholds from Nick 
But equally, I think that that's in response to the fact that he doesn't tell her about trips that he's going on and things that he has planned. I think that's more of a revengeful thing for her. And for me, other than the obvious neglect of the child, I just saw him as this outsider that was like, nope, that, that's not what you do here. You're not going to be liked for those reasons. Mm-hmm. I just see him as the kind of person who's brought in to revive a, not necessarily a university or a college even, but a institution and just thinks they can bulldoze their way in and get whatever they want. And I disliked him for those reasons as well. Let's talk about his wife, Mariah, for a minute. I mean, did you, I kind of feel like she should have had my sympathy. I do feel some sympathy for her, um, not least of all because she's married to Nick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that your she, unfortunately, she's the stepmom, isn't she? Mm. She's having to step into that most difficult of roles, it seems to me, must be to fulfil yeah. the role of a stepmother with a, with a very young and sort of nervous, agity child-like Felicity to look after and unable to form a really loving and effective bond with Felicity, although she does try, she does make quite a lot of effort. She's not really given the right support by Nick. She she was allowed to make a fool of herself by wearing his gown, mm-hmm. going to um, high table for them for the meal in, in the hall, um, which was quite an appropriate thing to do. Um, we know that first wife comes to a rather unpleasant end, and Briar is her replacement, and she's not unconnected to what happens to the first wife. Mm. It's very sad. And I think she probably feels herself in a very difficult position. I felt sorry for her from that point of view. Felicity's selective mutism is probably linked to her death of her mother um, in tragic circumstances. Before her mother died, she was a very normal very interactive little girl, according to the story. So you feel like, you know, there's been so much trauma for this little girl that she's decided that she's not going to speak to, well, she will speak to her dad and she does speak to Dee, but she doesn't really speak to anyone else. I think that Mariah takes this very personally, as anybody would, but other than that, I thought of all the characters in the novel, for me, Mariah was probably the one I felt least connection to and, and was the weakest. I think towards the end of the novel, again, without giving too much away, she starts to become more of a background character and more of a stereotype of a certain type of woman rather than a fully individualised character. And I think that's a shame. I think very often she's used as a foil for Nick's plans. And I would have liked to have seen a bit more of her character development for me to get any sympathy for her towards yeah. the end of the novel i found myself forgetting about her do you know what i mean i didn't really care for her at all and in fact i mean i didn't trust nick anyway really throughout the book very much i, I think he was a bit of a player mm. um, and actually it, there was something which intimated towards the end of the book that he might have been off um having a starting another affair with his secretary because this is just a line in the book about how he's, he puts his hand in the mm. small of her back. And I thought, ah, yes, OK, that probably means because at that point, Mariah had just given birth to quite a tricksy baby, to a difficult mm-hmm. baby. She was having um, problems breastfeeding and bonding with the baby. And there was a lot going on. And, and I think, you know, that it felt like Mariah and Nick were quite far apart at that point. And I just wondered whether he was going to be going off to have an affair. 
with his secretary at that point. I'm also interested in the notion that something can be right and wrong at the same time. That's mm -hmm. a little gray area. Kind of middle class neglect that was going on really about with Felicity and that, that seemed to be okay because they they were sort of professional um, go-getting parents and so they could employ a nanny to take care of Felicity in a way that they just couldn't or didn't really want to. There's no substitute whatsoever for parental attention for children. I think the, the sort of um, indifferent, very superficial attention that Nick and Mariah were giving to Felicity amounts to neglect. She wasn't really enveloped with love, as she should have been, and given the problems that she had. And it was quite obvious that she was psychologically a bit of a mess. And for reasons which they knew, and we don't find out until quite a long way into the book, she should have been given much more love and attention, by, particularly by Nick. Dee was really trying to fill in the gaps. And that's, that's where she went a bit wrong. She probably went a bit overboard with it. Do you think the overstepped the mark in her nannying in, in some respects? I think for me, the first time that that question came into my mind was the amount of times that Dee keeps Felicity back from school. And yes. for one point, I found myself very rarely agreeing with Nick in the sense that her response to, to Felicity being bullied or for feeling slightly unwell or, or for having a mental health day is, is to pull her out of school for weeks and weeks on end. Um, and at that point, I did think that, yes, yeah, she overstepped the mark. And I also think there is instances of her sort of lurking outside of the school to see what's going on again, which was probably the first time I thought to myself, OK, how reliable is this person as a narrator now and how vested is their interest in this child? Mm. Um, but yeah, the trouble is we only ever see it from Dee's angle. We only ever see it from her point of view. So really, we're left to fill in the gaps and make assumptions about what really happened. And we don't get the full picture ever. Yeah. Um, so it's all conjecture, really, I suppose. And all that stuff about, you know, that they were doing, like going around into gr to graveyards and picking up uh, skulls of animals and bringing them home and boiling them up in the kitchen on mm. the stove. There was a very kind of like, as Joe said before, sort of almost witchcrafty thing going on um, mm. there. And obviously Felicity was into that stuff mm. as well. She really liked to collect things like that. But I can understand why Nick, the dad, was would be pretty fed up if he came into the kitchen to the smell of rotting flesh being, you know, boiled up on his stove in some boiling water. I, I'm not sure I would have liked that or thought it was appropriate for a nanny to be... <laughs> participating in that kind of thing with another child that she was looking after of mine. Well, I do agree with that. I think that she shouldn't have been doing that. That was a stupid thing to do. It was a sort of a follow on from Linklater's involvement with Dee and with um, Felicity, wasn't it? Of all the characters in the book for me, Linklater is the most interesting and the most comical. I think he's he's got that sort of childlike joie de vivre and, and uh, excitableness Felicity latches onto and they engages her. And these sort of frolics around graveyards are something that she as a child enjoys doing. <laughs> Explain for the listener who Linklater is. Linklater is a strange chap who was 27 years beforehand a PhD student at Oxford and in fact was a 
classmate of Nick's when Nick was doing his PhD as well, mm-hmm. and who's been hanging around in Oxford ever since in a sort of bizarre arrangement where he's occupying rooms he's not paying for and, and living a sort of high life as, as a member of an Oxford college that he shouldn't really be doing and earning a sort of a rather tatty income from doing um, guided tours around graveyards and going from grave to grave of former Oxford students, like poets, people like that, and mm-hmm. taking, taking guided tours like that and calling himself the house detective. So going to uh, the master's lodgings and, and pretending to um, provide a history of the former occupants and what went on there. So it's a really weird character, but quite engaging, I thought. You're swept along in Dee's narrative and she clearly has a soft spot for Linklater that we see develop. Um, their relationship grows and grows as they spend more time together in these graveyards and so on and, and looking into the history and, the, and they form a club of outsiders really which is lovely to see on the one hand but then just thinking about how Joe's describing him there to the listener who's not familiar with the whole narrative of the book and is swept along with the romance of the Oxford streets and with two outsiders finally finding a place and a person with whom they fit actually it sounds quite creepy to think that there's this random man just going on door to door and (laughs) involved in so many people's lives and yet is telling uh, quite a big fib about his own in order to uh, have accommodation and lodgings. And yeah, I, I really fell for the magic of his character too. But actually, I think if he took it out of the context of the novel and placed him into the real world, he would be a figure of much more suspicion. Definitely, I, I think so. And he reminded me a little bit of a character that might pop up in a Harry Potter film. Mm, yeah he seems like almost otherworldly not in a ghostly sense but in kind of a, a school of of wiz, wiz, wizardry and witchcraft which which goes well with Dee because she's quite a witchy person herself isn't she yeah they do fit well quite well together don't they Oxford seemed a bit like its own character in the book to me as well and the and the other question that comes on from that really is like the new energy like Nick is the new energy in this Oxford mm. college is he is it always going to be tricky in an Oxford college, which is mired in history and tradition, to introduce somebody like Nick to be the master of that college? Is he ever going to be successful doing that? What do you Well, like I've alluded to previously, I think I would be innately distrustful of someone from a non-academic background coming in to tell others what to do and somebody who's perhaps unsympathetic and unfamiliar with the structures of higher education that for me would immediately cause suspicion Um, but if I'm being devil's advocate there did seem a lot of rituals and routines that excluded women that excluded outsiders that would exclude many many different people and and class is another big factor that comes into this Mm. Nick did go to Oxford himself but clearly he's gone out into the world of business and is quite the self-made man and again I think he never would have fit in with that world because of I don't know what the word is here because he's he is a middle-class person and I can not much about his status is revealed but certainly for Linklater and and for Dee they seem like people who have come from lower income backgrounds that are immediately thrown out of the university surroundings and not even considered so for Nick to be able to compete he must be a man of means but still as somebody who's completely unfamiliar with the procedures and the protocols of a university life let alone Oxford which has its own traditions on top of that you know I 
I don't have much sympathy for him in that respect, but I do wish that things were less archaic in the novel and they do seem unfair towards Mariah in terms of the expectations of the master's wife. That seems very misogynistic and archaic that she's expected to do so many things and a letter is written to her husband and not her. It's Yeah, I didn't like that at all. But yeah. that may be how it is. I have no experience of that. Yeah, from what I gather, there is a lot of that sort of stuff in, in Oxford, a lot of tradition. And, mm. you know, if you're not really a part of the gang, um, then you're, you're very much an outsider. Did you find out about Oxford, Joe, anything? Tell us about Magpie Lane. Well, Magpie Lane is a real place. Um, it's existed since um, medieval times, since the 1200s. It was it's a very unsalubrious lane. In the past, it was basically a haunt of prostitutes and a dangerous place to be going. Mm, right. it, it used to have a, an extremely rude name, which I'm not going to repeat in our podcast. It's <laughs> in the book for readers, if you want a reason to read it. Uh, it's names over the years. I did try to figure out which particular college is involved and that there are so many colleges that have got a connection to Magpie Lane that you can't really be sure. Mm. Um, Merton was probably the, the biggest candidate, but which is Tolkien's old college. And the idea of a college like Tolkien's suddenly being invaded by a brash Nick mm. and co and having the, the guts stripped out of it by his new wife, and redecorated in, in a very un oxfordy way, is actually going to cause a problem. That's a big part of the reason why I think Nick and Mariah are finding it hard to be accepted by the establishment. So fairly well, uh, but I hadn't realised that Magpie Lane was a real lane. I don't know about you, Zoe, did you know that? No, I, I don't know much about the structure of Oxford at all. I visited once to um, look at the colleges and the Ashmolean, but I don't know it innately at all. So, yeah, it's nice to know a lot more about it in this book. And for somebody who's an Oxbridge outsider, I think that there are some nice tidbits, you know, hearing um, about Linklater's trips. And I would have liked to have gone on one of Linklater's tours. He's very informative. Yeah. I don't mind that he goes off on all these tangents. I feel like I learned a lot from this book going through it when you were reading it was there any point during the story where you kind of thought you knew what the ending was going to turn out to be or did it keep you guessing all the way through because we're not going to tell the, the uh, <laughs> listeners what the ending is because that would really spoil it for you <laughs> um, but you know I'm just interested to know because when we had our book club discussion a few people said that they kind of cottoned on to what was going to happen quite quite early on I'm just interested to see whether you both did. What about you, Joe? A bit of a suspicion about Linklater. That's all, all I will say. Okay. He was kept guessing. I went down a lot of dead ends. I think I felt hook, line and sinker for Dee's narration, even though I knew she wasn't always reliable at times. I yeah. rooted for her. And especially after hearing about her history prior to Oxford, I really wanted things to turn out well for her. And so explain to the readers, you have all the chapters and then there's an epilogue yes. and right un up until the point of the epilogue I thought I had an idea about what might happen but it was very vague then the epilogue happened and I was shocked yeah so <laughs> I felt yeah. for uh, for the narration and just this, the overall story and and didn't see what would happen until right at the end so Lucy Atkins did a pretty good job there I think didn't she at, at keeping, so. keeping us going with that I mean, she's actually an award-winning author. She's a journalist and she writes for the Sunday Times and 
um, a book critic. She's written for The Guardian, The Times and The Telegraph as well. And lots of UK magazines. And she actually teaches on the master's course in creative writing at Oxford University. Ah, there so, we go. <laughs> there we yeah, go. She's a fellow of St Hilda's. So what it's like being at Oxford on the inside, she does. Mm, yeah. She does, you know, you could, we can probably believe a lot of what she tells us about well, how things, the traditions and how things mm -hmm. are handled in Oxford colleges, actually. Um, is one of those books that I think you feel that you're going to fly through uh, a little time to realise that it's actually a book to savour and to immerse yourself in, to, and to enjoy completely, because it's kind of curiously hypnotic. When I was reading it, I kind of felt like that about it. Um, how do you feel, Zoe, at the end of it? Was it a book that you thought, I really enjoyed that? Or how did yeah, you Yeah, it was. So the, I think maybe the hypnotic sensation about the middle and the bits that you wanted to savour, I didn't always enjoy as much. I started it and thought, wow, this is really gripping, really interesting. I'm going to race through this book, very similar to what you felt. And then mm. there had to be a lot of story building. And it was a long time covered because, like you say, you go into all of these past, but the events of the novel really take place over seven months and you really are drip fed each individual day, month, instant leading up to Felicity's disappearance and then afterwards. So... For me, sometimes I wish some of those bits could have gone quicker. Um, thoroughly enjoyable. Yeah, enjoyed it. I'm glad we read it. Um, to, to keep up with it, I kept, you know, it's a book you keep going back to. It's not a book that you put down and just leave for a week. It's a book <laughs> you want to keep going with. So I really enjoy that. Is it a book for a book group? Is it? A, would you recommend both recommend it for a book club? Successful with our club, so I mean, no reason why it shouldn't be with others. And if you had to score it out of 10, what would you give it, Zoe? Mm, I think I would give it an eight. Even though there were some elements towards the end, I found a little bit unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to be thinking about this for a while and I'm going to be telling people about it. I was trying to tell my partner about it just then. I was like, you'll never believe what's happened in the <laughs> ending. And it's like, well, I've not read any of it. This doesn't make any sense. I think it's one of those books that if you've read it, you'll really enjoy discussing all the twists and turns. So it would be great for a book club. Hey Joe, what are you scoring it out of 10? My scoring, I'm just looking back and seeing that I actually scored at 7.5. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I can't remember where the 0.5 went. It was, <laughs> but, um, I thought the ending was not great. Okay. Maybe yeah. that's where it went. Maybe that's where the 0.5 <laughs> went. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for joining me tonight, guys. It's been really great to have you back on and talking about Magpie Lane. Um, book that we're going to be talking about in about a month's time is going to be a non-fiction. Um, in our book club in Gloucester, we read two non-fictions a year, and this is one of them. And it's Invisible Women by Caroline Criodo Perez. So I look forward to having you joining us again very soon. In the meantime, keep reading. Thank you for listening to Gloucester Book Club's podcasts. You can find us on Spotify, Anchor FM, Google and Apple Podcasts and many more. We look forward to having you join us again soon.